Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. Odie Martinez. The two of us are uh, really appreciative of your being back with us this week. Uh, let me say a few words by way of introduction, then we'll dive into today's topic. Uh, I wanted to give a context uh, for uh, my contribution here, is I'm a professor of clinical psychology here locally at California Southern University, and I mention that because we'll be looking at addiction and recovery and topics that are related to that, and I'm coming primarily from a psychological perspective. There are multiple perspectives. I work closely, for example, with physicians who operate primarily from a biomedical perspective, and uh, I bring more of a psychosocial perspective and our conversations will bear that out. So uh, that's part of my background. Um, I'm involved with doctoral yeah. students who are uh, completing doctoral dissertations uh, addressing addiction and recovery. It's a, a real joy of mine to work with them and I bring the latest breaking news from the work that I do uh, working with these doctoral students. Secondly, I work as a recovery coach. In fact, I'm just coming uh, this week as I do each Wednesday from Beginnings Treatment Centers. I, I want to mention them because Beginnings uh, sponsors this weekly uh, podcast and uh, also want to uh, uh, locate the work that, that we talk about here in the context of the work that I'm doing, working with individuals and families who are in recovery from addiction. I uh, want to thank our two co-producers, Franz Salvatierra and Austin Armstrong, uh, who are uh, in the studio with us today. I want to encourage you to share uh, uh, the link to the, uh, this uh, podcast with friends of yours if you find it valuable, as well as to know that there are YouTube videos as well as archived videos of all previous podcasts uh, at Beginnings Treatment Centers. You can look that up, um, as well as in the Facebook uh, group, Ask an Addiction Specialist. There's multiple um, uh, roads to Rome here. Encourage you to access and to share what it is that we uh, we discuss. I'll be referring to some previous podcasts uh, earlier, uh, later today, that that we've done earlier, and you'll find access to those in the archives. Okay, so, and uh, uh, also by way of kind of. Uh, creating a context. Last week we talked about how it is that we lose ourselves and can find ourselves again. And I refer you to that podcast with Odie and me if you have an interest in checking that out. I think each podcast kind of builds on the previous ones. I think it's the value of seeing some of the prior ones and you're very welcome to consult with those. And uh, you're also welcome to write questions or comments if you view those through YouTube or through the Facebook group. Uh, and later on, I'll give you uh, even link to my, uh, my website. There are all kinds of ways to communicate to me questions that come up for you and I encourage that. I really would love to stay in interaction with you. So thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today's topic is practice makes perfect. I want to tell a story first of all about golf. Okay, I'll share this story with you and then we'll dive into the material today around practice makes perfect. Um, about four years ago, owing to a shoulder surgery on my right side, I had, I, I had been playing some golf on a weekly basis. I'm not a great golfer, but I was playing regularly with a, a colleague from the university. I had to stop because of the shoulder surgery on my right side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, my shoulders have received a lot of use. I'm not going to say abuse. <laughs> they received a lot of use in my life. I was a competitive tennis player uh, uh, all the way through uh, 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 my middle years. Mm -hmm. I played a lot of tennis. My right shoulder has borne the brunt of that, and I've had two shoulder surgeries there. My left shoulder uh, is uh, currently getting some attention. I've had two shoulder surgeries on the left side. That's owing to skiing, and my deciding that I wanted to become airborne <laughs> as a skier. 
And uh, probably the central aggravator of this, which is one of the key pleasures of my life, is that I've drummed my entire life, and so my shoulders have borne a lot of activity. Uh, uh, and so my golf career ended four years ago until last night. I went out last night to the local driving range, and I, I, I want to uh, begin to pick up back up golf again. And it turns out that I can play golf even with a little bit of a limited, limited left shoulder because my right shoulder is probably more involved in that. So I went out last night, and what I discovered was that I suck. <laughs> <laughs> four, four years of not practicing uh, is very unforgiving. And for any of you that are golfers, you know that it's very sensitive to nuance. And not golfing for four years does not count as nuance. It's like a massive crater in the midst of my, my, uh, my golf uh, career. And so what I, what I resorted to last night was I, I, I decided that with each one of my clubs, I started with the biggest one, the driver, with each one of them, if I could get one out of five shots, I have this whole bucket of balls, if I could get one out of five shots that was halfway decent, I would consider that as a success. Hmm. Now, honestly, Odie and our audience, <laughs> I didn't really reach that goal with some of the clubs. I did not hit one out of five good shots or I, I should say decent shots uh, with all of the clubs, but I went through all the clubs and then I came back and did it again. And, uh, and I kind of sort of got one out of five shots. <laughs> I never did get the direction exactly the way I wanted it to, but if I could get a shot that was airborne, I considered that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, it was a small world phenomenon. I was there golfing thinking that this is embarrassing because I really am not doing very well. At which point somebody called out, hey, Dr. Bob, and I looked over. And there was an entire group from Beginnings Treatment Center that was going there for their weekly ritual, none of which I knew. And so there was the whole crowd of people that I lead groups with today watching me suck. <laughs> which, of course, helped me a lot. Being self-conscious when you're golfing really aids you in terms of your skills. No, it didn't. I think with golf, you can kind of get away with that, though, because uh, a group of friends yeah. that I had up in New York, uh, we had like a local driving range yeah. slash golf course, right. and we would go there on the weekends. None of us mm. knew how to play, okay. so we were out there like, I don't know if you ever seen the episode of The Three Stooges, uh, when I, they're out there. I, I lived just, it yesterday. Yeah, so... <laughs> That was us. So yeah, I get away yeah, with that. yeah. I think I think they were probably more. This oftentimes goes this way. I think they were more forgiving of my ineptitude than I was yeah. for sure. Actually, I kind of settled into it. I want to use this story about golf and about inexperience and about um, where we're going today as kind of a metaphor for talking mm -hmm. about how it is that practice makes perfect. I, I do want to say this. I made a vow last night as I was leaving. Um, to come back next week. Hmm. I'm going to come back next next uh, next Tuesday night, and my yeah. wish is to come back and golf again and see if I can aim towards that one out of five. Mm -hmm. And I actually have some fair confidence that if I stick with this at least once a week, that I might get up to two out of five at some point in this <laughs> lifetime, and that yeah. would that would be a success for me. <laughs> so let me transition from talking about golf uh, to talking about shame. And in my case, those aren't so different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite related to each other. I want to kind of open this up into a dialogue with my friend Odie and our kind of examine this together. And I've got a direction that I want to go, but we can kind of improvise as we go. I do, uh, I do want to talk about shame as a discrete state. And, and, and the metaphor to golf is that I did get some good shots. Hmm. 
I, no, I was going to say I never hit the ball where I intended to. There are actually a few times that I did. Hmm. And those would be very discreet states, yeah. <laughs> okay. surrounded by lots of the balls being topped, which is they just roll, and, uh, and or going, I hit them and they go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of us have some sense of what it's like to be in a moment where we feel uh, acute shame in a specific instance. And I want to open it up for you and I to talk for just a minute. Maybe just start by talking about what does shame feel like as a, as a discrete event, like, it, like it, when it occurs just momentarily, where mm-hmm. do we feel it in our bodies? I wonder if you might reflect on that, if you'd be willing, Odie, yeah, when absolutely. you've been embarrassed or ashamed or humiliated, and I'll do the same. You know, what usually happens for me when I feel shame is uh, I feel it in my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I even notice that, like, almost like a turtle. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I start going like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I just, yeah. at times yeah. I just want to, just wish I was a turtle and yeah. just kind of just, yeah. just yeah. hide in yeah. my shell. I'm smiling, not at your experience, yeah. because there's nothing funny <laughs> to be smiling about shame, but I was just in Texas this weekend visiting my daughter and my two grandchildren. Nice. We were out on a golf course. That's what set this in motion. Okay. <laughs> we were out just getting a tour of the golf course because um, uh, my daughter and her family live right up next to a golf course now, mm-hmm. so we were getting a tour in a golf cart. And uh, my, my grandson, my, my daughter's son, Owen, spotted a turtle on the golf course, mm-hmm. and he went running towards it. The turtle was kind of moseying along. Mm-hmm. And predictably, what did the, the turtle do? It, it went, went just what shell. you talked about. Its head <laughs> went in the shell, and its legs went up in the shell. And, uh, and Owen was, was quite fascinated with this. Yeah. And so he uh, went up there and, and, and saw the turtle stop freeze and then as he walked away we watched the turtle's head come out kind of look mm. around and uh, legs come out and the turtle began to move quickly to get the heck out of t- out of dodge because uh, uh, it could yeah and and it's all, I think it's a great image it's a great image yeah. of, of shame and and in a sense that turtle's freeze response yeah. is very very similar to what happens in shame because shame is a freeze response as well yeah. it paralyzes us I ask uh, uh, the groups that I lead, in fact, I just asked the group today that I led, and people talked about feeling it in their stomach. Mm-hmm. You talk about it in your shoulders. Right. One person talked about his head in terms of his mind spinning. Mm-hmm. Another person talked about heart palpitating. It, we all experience it differently, but the yeah. fact is that each one of us can identify times that we've been really ashamed or, or acutely embarrassed, and we feel it very physically. It's a discrete mm-hmm. state of mind and actually state of body. Yeah. I also want to talk about shame as a stage. That would be the next slide. Uh, that, that, that there's shame as a discrete s- state. There's also, it's also possible, and I want to open into imagining into this, that we can experience uh, uh, shame with more permanence. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just a state, I'm thinking of it like a stage of development psychologically, emotionally, relationally, where we just kind of get stuck at a certain stage or a certain level, you might say. Mm-hmm. And it's a different way to understand shame, which is that it's not that I'm, uh, it would be almost like if I go with your image, Odie, be like I'm kind of constantly with that turtle with my shoulders like this. Mm-hmm. And you can probably relate to that. I can certainly relate to myself where you're just kind of walking around chronically with, it could be literally tautness in your shoulders, yeah. or for me, a queasiness in my gut is kind of mm-hmm. where I seem, seem to locate it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So if I go back to the golf metaphor, is that it's possible to get relief from that mm. momentarily, to yeah. get relief from that 
uh, even if I walk around chronically with my shoulders like a turtle mm -hmm. or my, my stomach uh, doing flip-flops, I can experience momentary relief. That would be a way to understand healing as a state. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can experience temporary healing of that, yeah. relief from that. I would say that yesterday, every few shots, I hit a really good shot. And I experienced healing yeah. <laughs> from the previous stage, right. probably, of, of, uh, of frustration and somewhat of shame. I'm overdoing the shame, but there was some there. In fact, for sure there was some there because I happened to be right next to the guy getting lessons from the golf pro. Yeah. And so they're right behind me, and the pro is really good. That's why they call him pro. Yeah. And his student is obviously a good learner. And I'm right over here next to them flubbing up. And so <laughs> there was some embarrassment. There was some shame. But there was why I get a good shot. And in my, at least in my mind's eye, I look back over my shoulder and did you see that? You know, that's pretty cool. So there's a momentary kind of healing of said shame for just, for just a second. Yeah. So there's a state. But what, where we want to head today is, is it possible to imagine healing from shame as itself being permanent? Mm. Which is to say, healing as a stage. Mm. And by stage, again, I mean kind of a level, a level of operating most of the time of not being swamped by turtle feelings yeah. or by gotcha. stomach earthquake feelings. <laughs> so the example I want to, to give is, is one from childhood for me. Mm -hmm. When I was 14 years old, uh, my family moved. Uh, we lived in Central California. We moved to a new town mm -hmm. the week before my first day of high school. Mm -hmm. So I literally went to high school the first day, did not know a soul in this town, Man. which means no soul that I know on campus. Yeah. And that was very scary for a 14-year-old. I'm right on the cusp of adolescence, kind of just moving into it, and kind of at, at the height of self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't thought of it till right this moment. Talk about vulnerability to shame, because yeah. I'm coming onto campus and by definition, I'm other than everybody on campus because mm -hmm. I'm a foreigner. Yeah. And I went into my first class, my first day of high school as a 14 year old, and it was a German class. I was taking German, which mm -hmm. in Central California is an odd phenomenon because uh, Spanish would be the more practical option. Both my older brothers had taken Spanish, and I took it on myself to take German. And I think I was doing it just to be different. <laughs> so it's not enough that I'm different. Moving into a new town, first day of high school, don't know a soul, right. but I'm taking a language that no one in the Central Valley speaks. Yeah. <laughs> it's not known for its German-speaking population. That's one of the luckiest decisions I made, one of the most blessed decisions, because it turns out that my German teacher, we called him Herr Hayes, Mr. Hayes, ended up becoming a lifelong mentor to me. Mm -hmm. And I met him the very first day of high school, and I, I took German for four years. It wasn't enough to take it for one year. I took German for four years, <laughs> so I developed quite advanced capacities to speak and read and write in German, very nice. and there was no audience for that. <laughs> I, I did get to go to Germany after high school, and I was grateful because I was fluent in German at that point. But that first day, I wasn't. Yeah. And so the very first week, we went into what was called the language lab. And I remember sitting at a desk, or it was actually a carol. Like, it was a, had little sides like this, so you had a little, little private little partition. Mm. And there was a microphone there, and Mr. Hayes, Herr Hayes, would be up in front, and he'd listen to each person enunciating German, mm. and he, would, he had little earphones on. He could correct your pronunciation, and, and, and he'd just go up and down the class like this. So we'd be reading uh, German words, German vocabulary words, reading sentences, and he would correct this. 
I did that for four years of getting that attention, but this is my first experience of it. And I remember looking up behind Mr. Hayes's head, mm -hmm. and on the wall behind his head was the next slide. And it said, Übung macht den Meister. Übung macht den Meister. What does that mean? Well, I didn't know at the beginning, but I had four years of staring at that to find <laughs> out that Übung means practice, macht means makes, uh, okay. Dane means the, and Meister means master. Mm. And so literally translated, that would be practice makes the master. And that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah. And so the term that we use more typically, I don't think we use that word, we use the term practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to argue that I think there's some wisdom to the German version, Üben macht den Meister, practice makes the master. And I want to talk about what I mean by that. Our typical way of understanding perfection, mm -hmm. and this will get into shame in just a second, whether it's golf or life, <laughs> our typical uh, usage of the word perfect or perfection in English translates as being without fault or yeah. defect. That's typically yeah. what we mean, yeah. that, there's, that there's no fault, there's no defect. As fate would have it, it wasn't enough for me to study German, which no one spoke in Central California. Just a few years later in college, I decided that I would study ancient Greek. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even studying contemporary Greek. And so ancient. there's no one on the planet that speaks ancient Greek. <laughs> don't ask me why. I guess because maybe my brothers didn't study it. I don't know. So I studied ancient Greek early in college, and I took an intensive uh, years course and was immersed in studying ancient Greek. And what I learned studying ancient Greek is that the Greeks... Well, there's an interesting piece, and you'll appreciate this, yeah. is that the, the Christian New Testament is, is, is uh, the original language for it that was written yeah. in was Greek. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, it, it gave me the capacity, for example, to read the New Testament in its earliest form, the ancient oh, Greek form. Yeah. And the term that's translated in the Christian New Testament, as well as Greek mythology, mm -hmm. the term that's translated as perfect, for example, Jesus says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. Mm, yeah. That term perfect in the ancient Greek connotes something different than our word in English does. Yeah. Now the plot thickens. Mm -hmm. And so the ancient Greek understanding of perfect had less to do with being without limitation or without defect or without any kind of uh, fault, right. rather than it means to be whole or mm. to be complete. Mm. And so it's to be whole or complete. And you might think, well, what's, why are we quibbling over this? I think that difference is an important difference. Yeah, I think so, too. To be yeah. perfect in the latter sense means to be a whole person. To be perfect in the other sense means to have no faults. Mm -hmm. And to be without fault is quite impossible for yeah, us as humans. Absolutely. To be whole, which would be to, whole as you are, to be whole as you are, to be complete as you are, Odie, yeah. or me, Bob, that seems quite possible. Yeah. So rather than the goal being one of being flawless, it's about one of wholeness. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I like that a yeah. lot better than yeah. perfect, because perfect is just kind of, uh, in the English sense of it, uh, language sense of it, it's kind of a high standard to yeah. try to go for. Yeah. And, you know, it sets us, it sets, yeah, exactly, it's impossible. It sets us up for, for guaranteed failure, because mm -hmm. none of us can be that. Yeah. So if we go back to the idea of Meister, from Übung machst den Meister, practice makes the master, mm -hmm. what would it be to become a Meister in this latter sense, the way yeah. that we're talking about perfection? It gets interesting, practice, and I want to, practice, I wanna, practice. Yeah, yeah, I want to tell a story about that, <laughs> for sure, and then I want to open it up to dialogue. Yeah. I want to tell a story and see what it triggers for you. Does okay. that sound okay? Yeah. And for you in the audience. Um, I started studying psychology 40 years ago. Mm. 
actually 41 years ago, mm. this fall. It's a long time ago. And uh, we studied shame. We studied shame. Mm -hmm. And we found definitions of shame. And we've talked about it here, which is some sense of there being that I'm inherently defective. Right. Um, which would be the opposite of the English understanding of perfection. Mm. Its opposite would be to be ashamed, to be fully aware of my, my uh, lack of perfection, my, my being uh, broken or defective. And so I studied shame as part of what we study in psychology and sort of studying uh, human emotions, particularly human emotions that cause uh, distress, including depression and other, uh, well, and, and addiction. But I never felt identified with it. I, mm. I, 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 I wrote papers on shame. We were required to write those. So I could actually write an essay on shame. But I always felt like I sure, I don't know if it's ever quite this way, but I'm going to say I sure feel sorry for those people that are ashamed yeah. of themselves. And, uh, and uh, proceeded through graduate school, proceeded through licensure as a psychologist, got into my career, and then uh, began to head down a rabbit hole for me that was a very gradual process of becoming more and more addicted to substance mm. and more and more vulnerable to making really uh, monumentally poor decisions in my life. Mm. And in the process, lost my career in psychology as a licensed psychologist, lost my career as a university professor, uh, uh, lost professional stature, lost financial security, etc. Yeah. And and then for the first time in my life had a lengthy uh, exposure to an immersion in, I would say, personal shame. Mm -hmm. So what I'd read about before that was at arm's length was now upfront and quite personal for me. Yeah. And so uh, we can we can look back in the last ten years on the heels of so much loss, and and finally a stopping of all of that to realize soul searching. What am I going to do? Am I going to continue down this path and just completely um, destroy my life, or is there the possibility of redemption and mm -hmm. healing? Yeah. And I made the latter decision, but it wasn't like overnight. It was, mm -hmm. it was a gradual process. Yeah. And so what I want to share here is that that what I began uh, in earnest about uh, half a dozen years ago, and we've talked about it here, I want to refer you all back to previous podcasts that we've had on topics such as forgiveness, gratitude, and uh, personal creativity. Those are three examples. I began to practice in my uh, early morning quiet time and in my day-to-day kind of routines, mm -hmm. began to practice things that I had never done before. And this gets, gets us back to the idea of daily practice. And as I began to practice, I, I, I want to say that when I started this process, this is probably an underestimate, I think I w was operating day to day, if you had met me during that time, that 90% of the time, and that's probably being generous, 90% of the time I was completely swamped by self-mortification. Mm -hmm. I felt awful about myself, what I had done, and I couldn't get out of it. In yeah. fact, as I've shared here before, if I was sitting with you, Odie, mm -hmm. I would actually imagine you looking at me through the eyes that I was experiencing. Mm. So I couldn't imagine being with you and doing you doing anything other than judging me right, yeah. because I was merciless in it. And how could you be other than that? Mm. And this isn't a theory for me. That was a daily experience mm. for me. Yeah. And it led to incredible distress for me. And you can imagine the depression, the anxiety, the, the uh, vulnerability to mm -hmm. addiction. All of that was going on for me, yeah. even in early recovery from addiction. So... 
one of the things I set about doing was getting myself clear of the addictive behaviors. And so I began working on that. None of that happened overnight either for me, but there was a gradual beginning to, uh, a beginning to kind of at least have the resources for being able to internalize mm. self-forgiveness or self-compassion. Right. And I practiced that religiously almost every day of the week, at least once in the morning. Mm. And as it began to be more habitual right. through the day, through the day. And so I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I roughly would say this is that I moved from a previous state of a permanent stage of being in shame, mm -hmm. in self-judgment, only feeling defective, mm -hmm. to right now, which is 10% of the time, <laughs> I can feel all those things. Yeah. And I, uh, it's probably an underestimate of the 90% and probably an overestimate of the 10%, mm -hmm. but just for simplicity's sake, the movement was from a permanent stage, 90% Bob Weathers is in a shame stage, mm -hmm. stage to nowadays, Bob Weathers continues to be vulnerable, and maybe 10% of the time, he's vulnerable to a state of being shamed. Does that mm -hmm. make sense yeah. so far? Absolutely. Okay. Actually, I care more about this than golf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to move, though, from, it's kind of a reverse thing. Right now, I told you one out of five shots might be decent. Mm. Maybe one out of 10 shots. If I could get to a place where one out of 10 shots are, are great or good, mm. that'd be good. I'd like to move the opposite direction. I'd like to move to a place where I can count on my shots that 90% of the time that they would be reliable. That's unlikely to happen in this mm. lifetime, yeah. realistically. But I'd like to move <laughs> to that, that perspective. But if you flip it around and look at shame, we're talking about reducing shame. We're talking about maximizing or optimizing golf game. Mm. We're talking about minimizing or reducing shame. And I guess what I want to do is I want to start by just acknowledging that it's possible yeah. to turn the ship around. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that that's possible to do that, that we can retrain old reflexes. Sometimes I think about it in terms of like a knee-jerk uh, reflex is that if you hit that place below your knee every time it kicks, mm -hmm. and if you look at that as an image of the way it used to be for me for shame, yeah. anytime you looked at me, I'd go <laughs> into a mortal state of shame. Yeah. And nowadays, you'd have to very actively shame me. And this is what I mean by 10%. If you really wanted to make me feel bad, you could come up with something that would be hugely critical of me. You could probably pick up on some of my history, mm. most of which I've found some relationship to in terms of acceptance. Mm. But you could pick up on something, and I'll talk more about this in terms of messages in a few moments, and you could shame me, and I'm not impervious to that. I'm not Teflon boy. Mm. Yeah. You could actually get underneath my skin, and I could go into a state of shame. Yeah. And uh, at least so far, knock on wood, that's as good as it gets for me, but it's a massive change for me to move from a permanent stage mm -hmm. to a temporary state, and I'm utterly grateful for that. Yeah. How does that sit so far? Does this make sense, what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. It um, can relate a lot to my history and, and my life with what I've shared before as well with uh, pornography and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, just how that switch that happens, it, it's awesome, it's a beautiful thing, you yeah. know, when it's 90% shame and it just keeps yeah. uh, cycling as we talked about before as well. Um, and then having that, uh, having that freedom of not being attached to, to that shame, to, to the addiction yeah. that I once had, yeah. and being able to to look back in hind yeah. hindsight and see the 
you know, the change that happened. Yeah. I like you're using the term freedom, Odie, because as we've talked about before, addiction comes from the Latin root of the word addictus, mm -hmm. which simply means slave. And right. so I think about my addiction, and I think you're, it's implied in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Think about addiction as enslavement. And there's something about that that moves it from being a medical term or a psych psychiatric or psychological term into being a human term. Yeah. Enslavement. You know about enslavement. I know about enslavement. Mm -hmm. And the healing of that leads to freedom or liberation. Yeah. And you've experienced that, and I have too, and I'm very grateful for that. Some mm -hmm. of the manifestations of that freedom for me, and I've written a couple slides here. One is that I've moved. I can really feel this difference. Yeah. Uh, and it's... Uh, documented in my journaling, it's documented in my life, is that I'm far less likely to blame you or mm -hmm. other people at mm -hmm. this point for things that you may have done that have hurt or even hurt or offended me yeah. because I'm much more inclined to forgive you. And I guess that's, uh, I don't guess, I know that that's based on the fact or very intimately related to the fact that I tend not to shame myself for doing things mm -hmm. that hurt you. Uh, I won't feel good about it. Mm. And as we've talked about before, I'll feel guilty about that, which will motivate me to change, but I don't move into that per paralyzed state yeah. or that enslavement to shame that I, that I once knew. And yeah. so just as I can empathize with those that suffer now in new ways because I've known suffering, mm. I can also empathize with myself. Mm. And we talk about that in terms of self-forgiveness or self-compassion, yeah. and that's a new commodity for me. Mm. When I was back writing those papers on shame in, in college and in graduate school, I wasn't mm -hmm. identified with it. And now it's not a theory, it's, an, it's a direct experience. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to live in a nearly constant state of, of shame, mm -hmm. of self-judgment, mm -hmm. of, of not being able to get outside of that. And so it does feel like freedom. Mm -hmm. It does feel like liberation to have some other option. In fact, that other option to be the more constant state right now. Yeah. Let me ask a question of you in the audience as you're with us today reflecting on this. If you have any taste for what we're talking about in terms of a more permanent state, stage, excuse me, more term, permanent stage of affairs, that is to say, if you live in a place where you doubt yourself, where you judge yourself, where you condemn yourself, can you imagine how good it would feel to experience what Odie's talking about in terms of freedom. Can you imagine into that? Let's take a moment right now just to give you a second to imagine that. It may not be possible, but see if you can. Can you imagine what it would be like to be free of that dark cloud? Mm -hmm. One way to make this practical is, let me ask a question of you all. Looks like somebody's asking a question here. Ah, uh, somebody's sending thanks to us. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for, for offering this help. That really feels good. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Um, I know both of us care deeply about this, mm -hmm. and um, we're works in progress. Yep. <laughs> we're both working on this. <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can uh, ground this in something more practical. I don't know if this will be accessible to you in the audience, uh, but I'd like to invite you to consider, is there a phrase that you can identify that would be that voice of judgment, that voice of condemnation, mm. that voice that would turn you into a turtle and me into a <laughs> whirlpool down here? Yeah. I'll share with you one that I thought of this week. And mm. uh, I, I, 
you know, I was just leading a group before I came in today, and we were discussing this amongst the men about shame, and somebody made the point, and they were right, mm-hmm. is that it, it's so automatic. Yeah. And to put it in terms of psychology, it's pre-conscious. We're not even conscious of it. Oftentimes yeah. it registers in our body, in our shoulders, or our stomach, mm-hmm. or wherever else. It's just so quick, so automatic. The part of the brain, the, the, the emotional center of the brain, referred to as the limbic system, moves so quickly is that it bypasses conscious reflection and you mm-hmm. just feel it. So I'm asking us to slow down the frames really slowly to imagine if you could give a word or a phrase to the message that comes up, what might it be that is in a sense the voice of the shame? And as I reflected on this week, one for me that comes up that summarizes all kinds of variations is something like this. What were you thinking? Mm. (laughs) What were you thinking? There's incredible shame in that voice Mm. because the assumption is is that obviously I wasn't thinking or if I was thinking there was something wrong about that thinking. Uh, And it refers to either attitudes or behaviors that that I've uh, committed or done mm-hmm. that that are shame worthy. Mm. So if I go back to the previous question, what would it be like? Can you imagine how good it would feel to be free in the way uh, that you were just talking about? Mm. Uh, to be free from shame. I imagine it to be more concrete. What would it be like to be free of that voice? Mm. And to be free of that voice that says to me, what were you thinking, Bobby? Because it always is looking at me as Bobby. That's yeah. the, the younger self. <laughs> the, the immature judged, judged self, mm. what, what would be a substitute for that phrase? And the next slide actually is what I came up with this week. The substitute for that would be, and, and has been, Bobby, just remember the baseline from which you come. I'm going to unpack that for a second because mm. that's not going to make sense necessarily. I find vast reassurance in this. What were you thinking, Bobby? And when I can respond inside, and it's not just a band-aid, it's actually from the deepest place. Mm-hmm. When I remember the places from which I come, both in terms of my life development, in terms of what I have survived and had to grow through, both in terms of, of the outer environment and the inner, uh, the inner body mm-hmm. into adulthood that, that I am and have been, is that if I can remember that baseline and how much work I've done and how much improvement there is, that I've moved from 90% to 10%, then I'm less inclined to judge myself. Mm. I'm less inclined to uh, nod in agreement with that judging voice. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Makes perfect sense. If there's a way that I can find to substitute another phrase besides what were you thinking, Mm. and for me it, it is this, I actually project this onto others. I'll yeah. pretend like it's you and it wouldn't be you. But if I imagine being judged by you, mm. the imagined conversation would be, Odie, I think you'd be less inclined to judge me if you knew the baseline from which I come. Mm. That is, where I started. Mm. If, if, you, if you were able to walk in my shoes mm. empathically, I think you'd be less inclined to judge me. And that's all, you know, it's, it's like an imaginary conversation, except yeah. it's not imaginary insofar as it's in my head. Mm-hmm. I have that conversation in my head, whether it's me judging me or imagining you judging me. And if I can find some effective counter to that, mm. I find that helpful. If it's just words, it would be right. empty words. Yeah. It, would be, it would just be empty words. And so what I want to reference for 
all of you who've viewed previous episodes, I want to ask that you go back to episodes that we've had that are focused on forgiveness practice. Mm -hmm. We've had two or three presentations just strictly on what can I do to learn how to forgive myself. I can't possibly take us through all of that today. It would take too long, but I can direct you back to presentations that we've done here in the podcast with Franz and with Austin addressing self-forgiveness. Another, another example, and we spend a lot of time talking about this, is that if I can cultivate gratitude, mm-hmm. gratitude for the gifts that have been given me, the opportunities that have been given me mm-hmm. on a daily basis, is that that's an effective counter to self-judgment because yeah. how could a bad person actually have good things happen to them? <laughs> and so remembering that good things are happening to me and calling attention to that yeah. uh, on a regular basis is another counter to, to uh, self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, ref- I recommend that you view uh, previous podcasts on the topic of gratitude. A third uh, series of podcasts that we've had address personal creativity. That is, yeah. in terms of really being true to your creative self. Mm-hmm. We just talked about this recently because yeah. I can remember you talking about acting as being one expression of your creative self. And what you're doing these days is a, as a, another expression of your creativity is that I want to uh, recommend that you go back and review our previous podcast on creativity. So whether it's self-forgiveness or thanksgiving, gratitude, or personal creativity, being true to our own voice, these are all ways in which we can give substance to this phrase of, you don't know where I come from in terms of my baseline. Mm. And I've been working really hard at self-forgiveness. I've been working really hard at staying open to gratitudes for graces that have been given me. And I'm trying to do all I can on a daily basis to cultivate personal creativity so that why I'm here on this planet matters. Mm -hmm. Those all end up supporting this simple phrase of forgive thyself, Bobby. Mm -hmm. You're doing okay. You're doing okay. (laughs) Let me pause it for just a second and see what this stirs up for you. Any thoughts or reflections? I think it's just, um, it's very important the way that you put it to, definitely replace that that voice that tells you otherwise like for me like what you shared for me it's it's always been uh, a voice of a relative of a close relative of saying you know you're not you're not good enough to and then fill in the blank yes, or just yeah, in yeah. general you're not you yeah. um, or you're you're good for you're good for nothing pretty much you know those two phrases um, I noticed that growing up that um, there's been times when I wanted to do something, uh, for example, like a project or something, and um, having that opportunity come up to, to actually do a project that I wanted to do, and then just kind of questioning it at first, like, well, am I good enough to, to do this, you know? And then just working on exactly what you said, replacing that with, well, you know, the baseline where I started, now look at where I'm at right now. So obviously there's a reason why I was I was given this project and it's because, you know, I now have skills that I worked at to get to this point. So I think it's important to to replace that voice. So Yeah. I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back to the earlier conversation about the typical English understanding of perfection, mm. which would be in that in that perspective, anything that's not perfect, you're not good enough. Mm. Is is that the, there are not good parts of yourself. Yeah. Who do you think you are, Bobby? 
who do you think you are, Odie? You're not good <laughs> enough. And that from this other perspective of perfection, we, t- we ascribed it to the ancient Greeks, their understanding was to be holy oneself, to be complete. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about like when you take on a project, is that if you're assigned that project, who they want is Odie Martinez. Mm-hmm. They don't want somebody else. And if you want Odie Martinez, you get the good with the bad. You get the you get you get all sides of it. Mm-hmm. I think of that that <laughs> that symbol of yin and yang of light and dark kind of interwoven mm. is that that's who you get. Yeah. And what would it be like to extend that to ourselves? Mm. Is that I want I want Odie to show up for this project. Yeah. And that means Odie shows up with his strengths. He shows up with his limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want the whole Odie. I want yeah. the whole enchilada. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> and the same with myself. Is yeah. that is that um, uh, in any given podcast, I'll slip and stumble at, because I'm human. Mm-hmm. It's like I get to be Bob Weathers here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of that, and that's perfect yeah. in the sense of complete. It's not perfect in the sense of not making errors mm-hmm. because I do make errors. We all make errors, yeah. and so the the Odie and the Bob that show up here for this podcast mm-hmm. are the ideally the whole and complete Odie and Bob, not partial parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't cut out anything. Yeah. Um, what I want to suggest, if I could take go full circle, is back to the golfing image, is I don't mm-hmm. think... Oh, let me ask a question of you, Odie. Okay. Have you been around somebody who that that in a moment is able to extend grace or compassion? You know, you talked about like a family voice in your family right. that somebody says you're not good enough. Have you been around somebody that you can call to mind mm-hmm. that says you are good enough as you are? Can you think of uh, even an experience of that where you, you had an experience of somebody seeing all of you and all of you is good enough mm. yeah definitely i mean uh my wife is uh you know an immediate instance uh a mm. uh, mentor of mine as yeah. well it's another immediate yeah. instance yeah. you know but other than that um outside of that i mean friends family of course mm-hmm. throughout the ages but uh uh growing up like the group of friends that i i had unfortunately <laughs> we uh, we weren't very, per se, vulnerable with each other, okay, so yeah. we were very judgmental towards each other. But that's just yeah. the way that we connected yeah. with each other. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, you give examples of experiences you've had with a mentor and with your wife, mm-hmm. where when somebody's able to to dispense. Um, I thought of unconditional love when you talked talked about it. That's and perfect. I, I would think of yeah. unconditional love unconditional being, love. I know you, like your wife knows you. I mm-hmm. know you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. And I love who you are. I want to be with you. That's yeah. a huge statement right there of acceptance mm-hmm. and of embracing all of your odiness. I talked about the example earlier with Mr. Hayes, my German, uh, uh, my high school German teacher, who after high school we were friends, uh, and he was really my mentor for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Very significant in my getting into psychology because he believed in me and saw mm-hmm. something in me, yeah. and I never felt judged by him. It was mm-hmm. just an incredible experience. He ended up being a spiritual father for me. Is that we can have these? We can have these uh, windows of grace from people yeah. in our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think what's happened to me in more recent years is what would it be like to walk around? Mr. Hayes passed away 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he's been out of my life literally for 20 years. He's not out of my life in terms of my prayer time. Mm-hmm. He's very present with me. Yeah. He's very present today. Mm-hmm. 
And so what would it be like to carry these, these experiences of grace from people as close as your wife mm -hmm. to people in our lives that have touched us, mentors, you mentioned a mentor, I've mentioned a mentor, mm -hmm. and that it's not even contingent on them being nearby or, or in the case with Mr. Hayes of being physically alive, mm -hmm. he's certainly spiritually alive. Yeah. And what would it be like to cultivate that? Mm. And that's what I'm suggesting yeah. in terms of moving from a temporary state of, of grace being bestowed, kind of like holy water, mm -hmm. grace being bestowed in a moment, and that registers deeply. But what would it be like to bathe in that holy water? Mm. To, that becomes our home. Yeah. That becomes our home. And I do believe that that's possible with the kinds of things that we've suggested over the course of this series on unshaming is to practice some form of, of, of quiet reflection, prayer, meditation, where you cultivate grace and compassion, mm -hmm. just as your wife gives to you, yeah. Odie gives to you. Mm -hmm. Just as Mr. Hayes gave and continues to give to me, Bob gives to me, mm -hmm. is that with practice we can actually become a master of I don't want to put this, kind of a master of ourselves amidst limitation. It allows mm. us to be limited mm. and to be perfect in that ancient Greek sense. Yeah. yeah. I like that. That's good. I've got a picture to show you guys. So little Bobby learned this message at age 14. Didn't realize that 45 years later, no, 48 years later, <laughs> 49 years later, <laughs> let's get the time right. 49 years later, I'd be talking about Übin Machstein Meister. Here's a slide, the next, the, the next slide. Here's a slide that's very close to that poster that, hang up in the fr that hung up in the front of Mr. Hayes' class. Here it is, you guys. Übin Machstein Meister. That's pretty doggone close to it right there. Mm. I stared at that every week for four years in high school. I never forgot that. Mm. And so if today's topic, we introduced it earlier, is practice makes perfect, the next slide has a little asterisk. Practice makes perfect in the Greek sense. Mm. And so <laughs> I hope that you can remember that today. And so what we're talking about, it's a beautiful example you gave, Odie, is okay. for us to spend time habitually in the presence of those that are able to see through this kind of wise compassion. Mm. And it's a blessing that you have that with your wife yeah. and that you've had a taste of that in your lives, in your life. And, and I've had that in my life as well. Mm -hmm. And then what can we do to cultivate that more consciously in whatever we do uh, in, our, in our daily discipline around mm -hmm. quiet time, prayer, meditation? Um, I think that that's, uh, that that's gold. Yeah. I think it's gold. Absolutely. And I really, I, I, this is, I, I feel like that all of our conversations are rooted in experience, and I really appreciate you yeah. always bringing your firsthand experience. Both of, us have, both of us have intimate acquaintanceship with addiction, with enslavement, mm -hmm. and both of us have a taste and a yearning for freedom. Yeah. And this is an example of, of, of how we can move from glimpses of freedom to it becoming more and more a permanent stage, a permanent location for us, a permanent residence for us. And I vote for that. Yeah. Okay. So I thank you. Vote. Yeah. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, uh, in a very similar vein, an extension of this conversation today, next week we'll be talking about surprising shame with love. You'll have to come back for, for me and for us to unpack that. I've already been working on that one for next week, and I'm looking forward to your coming back. Surprising shame with love. That's really what we've been talking about today in a way, is that love, real love, unconditional love, mm -hmm. has the possibility of substituting for shame that would bind us, that would drag us down, that would paralyze us. Mm -hmm. The kind of love that you're describing is liberating. Yeah. 
And I would wish uh, for each one of us here today to find more and more portals or avenues to accessing that love and carrying that with us increasingly, uh, both in our relationships in the outer world, but also our relationship to ourselves in the inner world. And I want to thank you for joining us. We're talking about the genuine uh, long-term antidote to shame and has everything to do with living lives that are free of enslavement or free, free from addiction. Mm. I want to invite any final questions if anyone has that. Mr. Armstrong? Not at this time. Not at this time. I want to invite you to send your questions to, to the Facebook uh, 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 group, Ask an Addiction Specialist, or mm -hmm. to YouTube. The next slide, look, I, you'll see my... Uh, professional website here. There's a contact me place on my website where you can write questions to me and you can address those to Odie and me and be happy to address those. I want to encourage you more so than I think ever before today to review uh, what we've, we've uh, created over the course of almost a full year now. There are a tremendous number of resources for beginning different angles and how you can cultivate what Odie and I are talking about today, not only in your relationships in the outer world, which are critical, I believe, mm -hmm. but also your relationship to yourself in the inner world. And so really, uh, uh, Hope that you'll hearken to that, uh, that uh, recommendation and go back and check out our previous uh, podcasts addressing, for example, self-forgiveness, addressing daily gratitudes, addressing what we can do to cultivate personal creativity. So come back next week to Surprise Shame with Love. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a blessing having you with us. Thanks, Odie. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, guys.